Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. How can we solve a problem like Al-Qaeda? The Sunni jihadist group has survived military defeats, drone campaigns, the deaths of top leaders and countless operatives, political revolutions, and the spectacular rise of a competitor in the form of ISIS. Yet Al-Qaeda persists as a global network and in the form of local affiliates such as AQIM in North Africa, AQAP in Yemen, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, Jabhat Fatah al-Sham in Syria, and a dozen more. You can't drone your way out of the problem since they have local ties and local uh, people working with them now. So you're expanding the field of possibly tens of thousands of people. So you got to make things work politically, locally, and win the peace after uh, these groups are driven out of territories that they control. That was Aaron Zellin, the Institute's Richard Burrow Fellow and the editor of a new Institute study, How Al-Qaeda Survived Drones, Uprisings, and the Islamic State, with chapters by a dozen of the world's leading scholars of Al-Qaeda and its affiliates. We'll talk with Aaron about how Al-Qaeda has survived setbacks that produced a decade of premature obituaries for the group, and what the United States and its allies can do to counter the rebounding danger of Al-Qaeda in the Middle East and around the world. After this. This is Lori Plotkin-Bogart, Kay Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. We're speaking today with Aaron Zellin, the Institute's Richard Borough Fellow. Aaron is a scholar of jihadist groups, editor of the website jihadology.net, and the editor of the groundbreaking new report, How Al-Qaeda Survived Drones, Uprisings, and the Islamic State. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations first on the new study. The publication includes chapters by 12 different contributors, including Bruce Hoffman, Charles Lister, Catherine Zimmerman, and Hans Jacob Schindler. How did what amounts to a counterterrorism all-star team come together for this report? I think a lot of it has to do with the reputation of the Institute as well as my own previous work. Um, So when I asked people to be involved in the workshop, which the monograph is based off of, I was lucky enough that they said yes. Um, And then, of course, they spoke and, and did their written statements for the record, which is what became of this edited volume. The authors focus on four main areas, the overall threat, Al-Qaeda inside Syria, AQ outside Syria, and the group's financial situation. Starting with your chapter and with Bruce Hoffman's, where does Al-Qaeda fit into the global threat picture today? Um, well, there's there's a lot going on, unfortunately. Just within the Sunni jihadi world in particular, AQ currently has an opportunity to try and take advantage of the Islamic State's current losses. That's not to say IS is completely gone, which I think some are unfortunately already analytically making in D.C. and other Western countries. But as we saw from 2009 to 2012, after um, the surge in tribal awakening, just because they might have been tactically defeated doesn't necessarily mean they could be strategically defeated. Um, But in terms of Al-Qaeda, I think they're going to seek to show that its model of patience in building with and through local insurgents and front groups um, that it could lead to a more stable and resilient Islamic emirate than sort of the governance that IS pursued through more totalitarian and top-down means. Al-Qaeda will also likely try get IS defectors, whether locally or foreign fighters, to come back to them and re-educate them on their interpretation on how sort of jihad should be waged, 
conducted and how to build a proper Islamic govern, uh, government, according to their, of course, interpretations. AQ is still, of course, trying to push lone actor style attacks. So we shouldn't forget about these possibilities as well. Um, it remains prominent in their propaganda. Recently saw a video message from bin Laden's son, Hamza, in May, talking about the need for this, as well as the leader of AQAP. So while they focused more locally, they're not necessarily out of the terrorism business in, in the West, though we definitely do see that they find there are a lot more fruitful opportunities for them to take advantage of in um, the Arab world just because of all of the instability in a number of countries. You mentioned uh, differences in uh, interpretations of how jihad should be waged and approaches to governance. Can can you go a little bit deeper on that? What are the differences uh, between uh, AQ and ISIS uh, on these core issues of how to wage jihad and how to conduct governance? I think in terms of theology, they more or less agree. It's more in terms of just more real world applications and tactics in relation to bringing it about. So for Al-Qaeda, they're a bit more pragmatic in some ways where they're willing to work with other actors and not necessarily seeing somebody as being outside of the pale of Islam and therefore they need to be fought, whereas uh, the Islamic State uses takfir heavily, which is apostatizing um, individuals or groups. And as a consequence, this, of course, narrows their ability to work with anybody. I mean, they essentially monopolize everything, whereas a number of Al-Qaeda branches have been working with different local insurgent factions or tribal individuals, as well as creating other types of front groups so they can uh, have a better chance of succeeding over time and therefore trying to work with the local population and socializing and normalizing their ideas so that when they do decide to announce some kind of Islamic state or emirate or whatever they call it, that it wouldn't necessarily seem as sort of a shock to the system of the local population the same way with the Islamic State. It's sort of like the analogy about the frog in the pot of hot water. If you just put the frog in and it's extremely hot already, it'll jump out. But if you slowly dial up the heat, then it'll die. So I think that that's the main gist of it. In terms of the day-to-day governance, I think that AQ has been willing to be more lenient on some of the criminal punishments so far, just because they see them as possibly having a backlash from the local population, since they have tried it in some locations previously, and that then hurt them, especially in a place like Yemen or Mali, maybe. So they're trying to have more of a gradual approach in in that regard as well. And another difference that that, that you can speak about is uh, in in terms of relationships with subsidiary groups or with uh, extraterritorial sister groups. You've written extensively since the uh, since ISIS declared the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq about the group's uh, attempt to establish provinces beyond that area from Afghanistan uh, all the way to uh, North Africa, whereas Al-Qaeda has similarly worked with local groups in countries and regions across the world. What are the differences between the two groups' approaches and how has Al-Qaeda proven to be the more durable model? I think Al-Qaeda has been a bit more durable just because of their willingness to build relations with local populations and local actors over time. Hmm. Um, It's important to remember in a lot of these places, uh, many of Al-Qaeda's top leaders have, have been in these spots, whether in Yemen or Somalia or Mali or the AFPAC region in South Asia. 
for at least two decades now, maybe a little less in some other places. So they've been able to build up these relationships, whereas IS just trying to come in and dictate to people what they should do. So this more gradual and slower approach, I think, has helped out rebuffing ISIS's efforts to try and push. Plus, because the Islamic State wanted to create these along the lines of provinces instead of just branch insurgent organizations, they also had the extra measures of having to try and develop governance in places as well, which, of course, is a bit more difficult than just conducting terrorist attacks or insurgent violence against uh, local militaries or security forces. Um, So that sort of raised expectations. In a place like Libya, they were relatively successful, but they also didn't have the same local base as they that they might have been able to build if they first were just interested in recruiting people and letting the local population get to know them maybe over a five to 10 year period and then attempting governance. I mean, that's at least what we've seen thus far. And also none of Al Qaeda's branches have actually given allegiance to IS's uh, leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So it's shown that these relationships forged um, amongst um, al-Qaeda cadre going back to Afghanistan in the 80s and 90s still remain strong even decades later. The biggest question will be these relationships that IS has created with individuals that went to Iraq and Syria, whether they will be durable over the long run as well. There's signs that they have been since the number of people that have been involved with the group in Iraq last decade in the mid-2000s rejoin them again when they're resurgent. So it's definitely a possibility, but something to think about also going forward. Well, and if Al-Qaeda is taking an approach that's that's more uh, slow and local, is their endpoint ultimately uh, similar to uh, what ISIS was trying to rush and do and, and set up actual territorial governance, uh, effectively creating uh, some kind of new model of, of statehood that controls territory and people within that territory? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they both have the same end goal. Al-Qaeda just thinks that it's necessary more so to prepare the society and population for these ideas through education and outreach and proselytization and also not essentially pissing them off. (laughs) So, you know, it would be a similar type of theocratic uh, entity as well. And and just like the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda doesn't believe in the borderlines that have been drawn in the Middle East in particular. So they would be sort of a revolutionary state in that way also, where they'd probably try and take over territory. Whether they could actually ever get to that point, that's, you know, I think a big question overall in the field strategically. But that is sort of where they hope things will go over time. Well, and especially since 2014 um, and uh, what, what to many Americans was the, uh, the surprising fall of uh, Mosul, ISIS has dominated American thinking about the jihadist threat in Syria as well as Iraq. But the report, the new report, features chapters by Charles Lister, David uh, Gertenstein-Ross, and Samuel Heller about al-Qaeda in Syria. How has al-Qaeda persisted there? Al-Qaeda's branch in Syria, um, which was originally Jabhat al-Nusra and then later Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, and now they go by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, or HTS for short, They've had many different varieties of phases sort of within the Syrian context. At first, they're primarily doing sort of urban terrorism, similar to what we saw in Iraq last decade, especially since many of the early individuals actually were dispatched by the Islamic State of Iraq in 2011, which was 
what eventually became ISIS and the Islamic State. But then they realized that if they wanted to have more of a longer term approach and build things up better, they needed to actually work with people. And one of the key groups that they have been working with has been Ahral Sham to gain more legitimacy locally, um, which is essentially a local Salafist group where some of the original founding members actually had ties to Al-Qaeda going back a decade or two. So they used that in terms of sort of carrots through this local uh, group sort of providing them space. But they also used sticks as well over time where they tried to eliminate more nationalist type of groups, which, again, groups like Ahar al-Sham provided space for them to do. Um, the biggest test now, though, is sort of their uniting the ranks initiative that they've attempted to do for the past year or so, especially since last summer, 2016, which thus far has failed insofar as them allegedly trying to break external ties to Al-Qaeda, yet at the same time being rebuffed for a full merger with Ahrul Sham. Therefore, they kind of are stuck in some ways, um, not having the same legitimacy locally or, or seeming to have diluted itself when it created HTS by merging with some other local groups that might not live up to sort of the jihadi Salafi ideology or methodology, um, which has been one of the critiques of actually its former head Sharia official, uh, Samuel Al-Uredi, as well as a top uh, jihadi ideologue, Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi. The reality is, though, that there is no one, no one strong enough uh, to take them out, even if there are these uh, tensions between Ahrar and HTS at this point. None of them are really in a good position since they're surrounded by enemies in sort of the northwest part of Syria and Idlib governorate. And, you know, there have been on and off rumors about certain actors possibly going back in and trying to retake the territory, whether it's the Russian and Iranian-backed Syrian regime or possibly even Turkey to attempt to take on HTS since they aren't seeming as sort of pliable enough to work with, like, Ahrar al-Sham or possibly as part of Turkey trying to block off the Kurds from connecting their different cantons in um, northern Syria. It appears, at least for the time being, that there are going to persist vast stretches of Syria that are, are not <coughs> controlled by anything approaching a government, whether the, the, the regime's authority or the authority of uh, any kind of uh, nationalist or, or, or rebel government. If there continues to be territory that's controlled in some way by al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda-affiliated uh, groups in Syria, what does the past behavior of Jabhat al-Nusra and uh, Jabhat uh, Fahd al-Sham tell us about the potential future of that portion of Syria that may be under al-Qaeda governance? Well, they haven't been overtly controlling the governance apparatuses like we see with the Islamic State. They're trying to work more through local councils. They have set up their own sort of judiciary, Dar al-Qaeda. So they're focused more on that aspect of things in terms of justice and education. We've seen a lot of pushes for that. But in terms of the day-to-day work, I don't think they're as much involved. So it's not in the same kind of monopolizing way we've seen with the Islamic State. They're trying to not put too much of their hands in the pot because it's probably too much of an effort for them. Many people like Sam, who wrote in the piece, believe that they might not have the capabilities to fully control government. Um, in a way that would provide for the citizens and therefore only doing it on a limited level. So time will tell. And 
even if the Islamic State is pushed out of Raqqa itself, they still control territory in other parts of Syria too. So a full Syria back to how it was before 2011, at least in the near term, is unlikely, especially since the Kurds have also taken their own territory over the last couple of years, and they have their own possible ambitions, depending on whether they're talking about it in public or private. We see in Syria that there are rivalries between al-Qaeda and uh, the Islamic State at a high level, but also uh, significant rivalries and cleavages within each of the two uh, jihadist camps. Are there any lessons that we could be learning from the situation in Syria with regard to opportunities we might be able to exploit when it comes to cracks between and among jihadist groups like al-Qaeda? I think uh, we have already done some of these things in Iraq last decade when the U.S. government was involved in the surge and working with the tribal awakening, when they pulled away a number of uh, groups from uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq than the Islamic State of Iraq, even if they were maybe a bit more Islamist or Salafist in character than we might want to work with usually, but it was to the benefit of defeating a group that was seen as more dangerous and has continued to prove to be very dangerous. So I, I think that that's what the military is attempted to try and do over time in terms of working with some of the Syrian rebels. But the problem has been is that the other rebels have just not seen to be strong enough to take on groups like Jabhat al-Nusra and their different variations afterwards, uh, just because to survive against the Assad regime and the various other actors, they've all had to work together. So it's it's been a bit more messy and a lot of them haven't seen, I guess, the scenario which would lead them to feel like there's something existential against them just because of how al-Qaeda's strategy is borne out in Syria in terms of working with the local population, which has been smart for them, which has complicated things in many ways in terms of the U.S.'s efforts, which has led to the U.S. sort of doing a half-and-half half policy where they've attempted to do things, but they haven't gone full in because they worry about you know weapons going into the wrong hands or certain benefits get going to al-Qaeda and its allies as well. So it's uh, it's definitely been difficult. And I imagine that you'll see similar types of problems in other locales as well, just because of the strategy that al-Qaeda has pursued, um, especially in places like Mali and Yemen and possibly Afghanistan with the Taliban retaking territory again in the last year. Well, and indeed, the, the new study offers snapshots of al-Qaeda's efforts across not just the Levant, but the entire Middle East, and in some cases into South Asia and Africa. There are chapters by Catherine Zimmerman, Andrew Lebovich, Christopher Anzalone, and Don Rassler. What lessons do their reports offer about al-Qaeda's global objectives and capabilities, and, and what al-Qaeda is doing in each of the various theaters where it's active through uh, various subsidiaries, franchises, or front groups? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest lessons we can see across the board, uh, whether it's in Syria or these other locales in Yemen, Somalia, Mali, um, the AFPAC region, even Libya as well, is that you could see that at a sort of top strategic level, Al-Qaeda has a plan. That doesn't mean that every single thing on a day-to-day -day basis is being done by Ayman al-Zawahiri. That's sort of a straw man argument some people claim to make. But instead, they do have a plan in terms of how they seek to work with these local actors. And then each group, depending on the particular context, will provide their own sort of tactics and operations and how they see fit. 
Of course, in some cases, it's worked out better than others. Each country is different. Each country has their own history. Each country has their own capabilities. So you can't necessarily generalize, but we have seen these AQ branches working less exclusively and trying to bring in other local actors to either gain legitimacy and benefits from them or to use them as fronts for the broader aims of socializing and normalizing their ideas uh, with the local populations. So depending on the space given, you know, you could see varying levels as well as who might be trying to fight against them. So in the case of Libya, for a time, there was this space for Ansar Sharia in Libya to operate, um, as well as then when they folded into these different Majlis Shura groups in Benghazi and Derna and Ajdabi and elsewhere. But then you have somebody like General Khalifa Haftar, who's been fighting against these actors now for the better part of three years, really pushing them back and pushing them out. So there is this level of harassment against them, essentially, um, which doesn't provide them the space anymore. Whereas in contrast, maybe in a place like Mali or Somalia or Yemen, that's sort of ebbed and flowed depending on what's going on and the various political factors of other actors in the countries. So we've seen, you know, AQAP in control of territory in 2011 and 2012, um, but then being pushed out. And then again, they're able to regain territory in 2015 and parts of 2016. And this sort of scenario, we've seen the growth in the amount of territory controlled or the retraction in Somalia a number of times, or in the case like Mali, where uh, AQIM is merged together with a bunch of local Islamists, as well as other front jihadist groups into this new faction called Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam al-Muslimin, or JNIM for short. So you could see that they're slowly building up capacities. And even if some groups are being pushed back, overall, you see them making gains, even if it's really grindingly slow, and that they're taking advantage of any opportunity to give. So if you give these types of group an inch, they'll take a mile, as the old saying goes. In situations where Al-Qaeda is successfully expanding its reach or simply its presence uh, in, in a local area by working with local communities, what's what's the glue? What is it that brings people to Al-Qaeda's side to work with Al-Qaeda and, and eventually to identify with it? Is it ideology? Is it theology? Is it simply uh, money, economic opportunity? What's, what, what is the, 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 what's the lever that Al-Qaeda is able to use to work its way into local communities? It's a number of factors, and you could say the same thing about the Islamic State as well. Um, you know, jihadism as a phenomenon is very complicated. You can't just say it's one thing or the other. It's, it's a mixture of things in many ways. So each person is different in some regards, but They'll have maybe 20% of this, 30% of that, et cetera, et cetera. So it could be anything from some kind of local grievance somebody might have with their government or their possible opportunities, as well as you know the ideological and religious factors, as well as those who are just seeking adventure and find it a good or fun time and are just bored in their life or something along those lines. In other places, there might be identity or empowerment. Um, so it, it just really depends. You can't just name one particular factor. It's sort of a, a mix of all of these, if not potentially others, you know, uh, just off the top of my head. Also, people that might have been involved in criminality in the past, it could be providing them a space for redemption as well. So 
it really just depends. And one of the things that jihadi groups, Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State have done that have been good is that while they have these sort of broader meta-narratives about the war against Islam and inability to practice how they want locally and, you know, that these so-called apostate regimes are being put up by Western governments, so on and so forth. But then they sort of micro-targeted in some ways the particular locations or places so that those that might be from a particular country will better appreciate it or it sticks to them more. So, you know, when they're putting out a video message about Tunisia, will talk more about the particular context in Tunisia in terms of politics, culture, economics, and how these linking these broader grievances that somebody might have in, say, Tunisia connects to their broader meta-narratives that they're trying to push. And once they are able to possibly make that link for that person, that's how the person might then get drawn in if they're able to get connected to some kind of recruiter. Much has been made of how uh, relatively inexpensive the uh, communications and, in many cases, the operations of uh, jihadist groups like Al-Qaeda can be. But nonetheless, it does still take resources to conduct online operations, to support operatives on the ground in, uh, in, in, in any given place who might be uh, establishing and, and expanding peer-to-peer -peer networks. To that end, the study closes with chapters on Al-Qaeda's current financial status. We've got chapters from Hans Jacob Schindler and our own colleagues, Kate Bauer and Matt Levitt. Washington and the international community have devoted significant efforts to interrupting and blocking Al-Qaeda's funding for more than two decades now. Where does Al-Qaeda's balance sheet stand? And what more should the international community be doing about Al-Qaeda financing? Al-Qaeda continues to receive donations from rich individuals in a number of Gulf states. This um, is a continuation of what we've seen going back to the late 80s and early 90s. One of the things we've seen return over the last couple of years, which kind of was shut down after 9-11, was the abuse of charities. Part of this is a consequence of the many humanitarian crises in places like Iraq and Syria, Yemen, Libya. Um, and elsewhere. So it's been easier for people to take advantage of these for other causes. But we also have seen Al-Qaeda and its branches diversify more in terms of ways it gets money, more from local revenues so that they have extra money on the side possibly. So in terms of Jabhat al-Nusra, they've been involved in kidnap for ransom, extortion of local population, as well as taking war spoils when they've taken over territory from their enemies. In terms of AQAP and their most recent control of the port city of El Mukalla in 2015, you saw them stealing money from uh, a number of banks in the areas they controlled. But they're also uh, getting revenue from taxes on shippers and traders who are going in and out of the ports. In terms of al-Shabaab in Somalia, we've seen extortion as well, um, ambushes and kidnapping for ransom. Similarly, one of the unique things about them is the smuggle in uh, charcoal industry. But we've also seen al-Shabaab create legitimate small businesses to get money as well in some of the larger cities in the country. And they have controlled at varying points, depending on you know, how well they're doing militarily, some port facilities and therefore being able to get taxes through that. As well, in terms of AQIM in North Africa and the Sahel region, you see them taxing criminals, smuggling networks along established routes. And as we've seen with 
the large wave of migrants who have been coming from sub-Saharan Africa into Western Europe over the last few years. This is, and many of you know these routes will go through territories that AQIM is operating in or controlling. They're able to take advantage of this, uh, especially in places like southern Libya. And then, of course, AQM has historically been known, especially for the last 10 or 12 years, with really being involved in kidnap for ransom. And we actually just saw one of the people that kidnapped being released. So it's quite possible they might have made money off of that recently um, as well. In terms of what can be done, you know, since uh, these groups are diversifying and getting revenue locally more so than they had in the past, it, it makes it a lot more difficult because at least when you're within the formal financial sector, there are ways of freezing bank accounts and sanctioning individuals that are involved in this if they're designated by the U.S. State Department and Treasury Department and or possibly the United Nations. But the biggest issue, too, uh, besides the local angle, is that some states are still not necessarily taking some of these designations seriously or turning a blind eye, whether it's, uh, you know, the the biggest people, especially related to Syria, and this has been Qatar and Kuwait. So um, that's been a problem. But you still see individuals from other Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates involved in these types of donations as well. So it's it's still a problem, though. The Saudis and Emiratis have tried to get their houses in order a, a bit more than the Qataris and Kuwaitis. But it's still not a resolved issue by any stretch of the imagination. And there's plenty of blame to go around everywhere. Our colleague Matt Levitt has, has extensively documented the, the Lebanese Shia terrorist group, Hezbollah's involvement in uh, global criminal activity, both directly and just working with partners of convenience who are essentially mob organizations of one kind or another in drug smuggling and stolen car smuggling. Some of this activity has its roots uh, in North America and South America, uh, far afield from Hezbollah's base of military or terrorist operations. H- have any Al-Qaeda groups been similarly moving into partnering with just outright criminal organizations for, your, for purely uh, pecuniary motivations? I don't think we've seen Al-Qaeda do anything on the level that Hezbollah has. Um, it's more sort of as I said, on these smaller levels and more petty in some ways, Mm. though it's definitely been one of the ways that they've financed some terrorist plots and attacks in Western countries in the past. Well, they'll defraud people through getting loans and then not paying them back or stealing cars and then selling them or Mm. um, any other types of schemes like that. But it's more uh, sort of not as large of an operation such as Hezbollah's, which is transnational in many respects, but also they have the support of a state actor in Iran, mm-hmm. whereas Al-Qaeda doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a bit easier in some ways, I imagine, to set up that type of infrastructure when you probably have a much larger budget as well as possibly a greater network of people being involved, um, possibly, whereas Al-Qaeda seems to be a bit more ad hoc and localized, though you do see more connections going back and forth, especially between AQAP al-Shabaab and AQAM, just because they're relatively close to each other over territory in the Gulf of Aden and then the Sahel region. But at this point, we, at least publicly, you know, and you never know what could be going on uh, clandestinely, but at least publicly, nothing's been shown to see al-Qaeda being involved in anything 
like what we've seen um, with Hezbollah in that regard. Again, the new study is titled How Al-Qaeda Survived Drones, Uprisings, and the Islamic State, and you can download it from WashingtonInstitute.org. Aaron, what are your bottom lines for policymakers and the public as Al-Qaeda regains relevance as a global terrorist threat? You can't drone your way out of the problem since they have local ties and local uh, people working with them now. So you're expanding the field of possibly tens of thousands of people. So you got to make things work politically, locally, and win the peace after in, uh, these groups are driven out of territories that they control. Looking at uh, the course of American strategy and conduct, especially since 2001, do you think that our our government has, uh, I guess, the assets and the ideas that it needs to achieve lasting uh, defeat of Al-Qaeda? I don't know if you'll necessarily completely defeat Al-Qaeda or ISIS or jihadism in general. Um, the hope is to try and continuously push them back and therefore over time, hopefully locally in the region in particular, the ideas become discredited because they're seen as failures. Um, I mean, you still have people that claim to be Nazis nowadays, or communists, even though, you know, Nazi Germany was defeated and the Soviet Union fell. So I imagine that that's probably the best measurement is if you see somebody claiming to be some jihadist and people kind of just laugh them off, seeming like they're a fool or like, how could you believe this stuff? And, and not seeming like it's some kind of sexy, revolutionary, cool type of endeavor. So for me, you know, this is more of a multi-decade issue than it being something that can be militarily defeated within the next few years by any stretch of the imagination. So it's it's more about discrediting a set of ideas than necessarily defeating any particular groups of individual people. I mean, it's a combination of both. They they definitely lose their shine when they're losing militarily. You don't see as many people being interested in trying to go to Iraq and Syria now with ISIS as a consequence of them losing territory and thus illustrating that they're not just some behemoth that could take over anybody. So I think, you know, both things together work, can't just have one without the other necessarily. We've been speaking today with Institute Richard Borough Fellow Aaron Zellin, editor of the new report, How Al-Qaeda Survived Drones, Uprisings, and the Islamic State. You can find the full report online at WashingtonInstitute.org, and you can follow Aaron on Twitter at AZellin, that's A-Z-E-L-I-N. Aaron, thanks for speaking with us today. Great. Thanks for having me. This has been Near East Policycast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Music